evening. Welcome to the COVID-19 Complexities of Global Town Hall. I am Patrick Ryan, founding president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm honored to introduce the program this evening and to welcome you and our distinguished panelists to a program that will address this once in 100 years pandemic that a year ago was on the minds of only a small band of public health officials and science fiction writers. We're now bowed down by an insidious virus that has infected 26 million people, killing almost 900,000 around the world. Of those, over 6 million have been infected in America, and we have lost over 190,000 Americans. Those are numbers so horrible it's difficult to focus your mind on the magnitude. Let us pause for a moment to consider the toll. Last night, the town hall was led off by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who was masterful in setting the scene for the conversation that followed on the part one panel of the town hall and will continue this evening. I commend his keynote to your attention and you can find it on our website, tnwac.org and on the websites of many of the other participating councils. Tonight, we welcome a terrific panel to tackle the question of the global response to COVID-19 and what the future holds in store. They represent public health and policy, journalism, academia, and government operations. We are fortunate to be able to present them to you this evening. This program is the result of collaboration led by Joyce Davis of the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg and colleagues from the International Relations Council of Kansas City, World Denver, Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, the World Affairs Council of Western Massachusetts, the World Affairs Council of Kentucky and Southern Indiana, and the Tennessee World Affairs Council. We are jointly committed to the goal of informing our communities about the world, especially issues that challenge our leaders and citizens. These councils are among the almost 100 sister organizations around the country that bring the world to cities and states. We're joined together in a network headed by the World Affairs Councils of America in Washington. Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce the Chief Operating Officer of that office, Liz Brailsford. With much of her career in the international arena, Liz joined the WACA office with a wealth of management experience in nonprofit, public, and private sector work. It's my pleasure to yield the floor to Liz Brailsford. Thank you so much, Pat. And thank you to the International Relations Council of Kansas City, the Tennessee World Affairs Council, the World Affairs Council of Harrisburg, and World Denver for putting on this event tonight and speaking. Waka is grateful to be here and to be included in this wonderful event. This is one of the hundreds of quality virtual programs the Waka Network has executed through these recent months. We are so proud of our councils for their deft and robust digital pivot and the job they've done to not only survive in this difficult time, but thrive. You know, we've faced uncertain times this year where catastrophe and tragedy abounds, polarization and division has, have been sowed in our civil society and sorrow pervades in a complex manner. However, for all the adversity that's been occurring, there have been some positives. This has been an extraordinary time in the network 
that showcases our grassroots power, power and convening capabilities at a time that has been so tough for our country. It's knit our network together closer than ever. We can't always accurately predict the future and we can't snap our fingers to engender immediate change. But what we can do is continue to have these conversations, pull together to create community and commonality, and talk about important global issues to enable understanding and progress to meaningful and lasting change. So yes, we may be in an unprecedented time, but due to the work our network is putting out there, and crushing, frankly, I feel hopeful for our future and happy to be so connected to our 90 plus world affairs councils around the country. Check out our website at worldaffairscouncils.org where we have all the latest news about WACA and the network. You will see there that on September 10th, WACA president and CEO Bill Clifford will be moderating a webinar with past WACA chairman Mark Grossman called the American Diplomacy Project. You can register for that on our website. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us tonight to discuss this timely and important topic. Please support your local World Affairs Council and help us continue to engage on international affairs and create the community we all need. Enjoy. Thanks, Liz. It's uh, now my privilege to introduce the moderator for the program. Uh, we uh, were very happy to uh, have Joyce uh, Davis, who is going to lead the uh, the panel discussion. Uh, Joyce called together uh, uh, councils that were interested in getting involved, and I knew that uh, if she was uh, directing uh, the traffic of a number of councils getting together, it was going to be a, a top-notch affair. And last night uh, was was evidence of that, uh, her moderating skills. It was a terrific panel and uh, we uh, tip our hat uh, to you, Joyce, for organizing uh, this great program. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Patrick, but I'm gonna tip that hat right back to you and to uh, Matthew and to the other, John, the ones who came together to make this happen. So this was truly teamwork. It was nothing but good people coming together to inform our communities, which is what we are all about. So tonight we're gonna to continue the discussion, a very important discussion that looks at the impact of COVID-19 around the world. We've dubbed this COVID complexities, a, a global town hall. And tonight we're gonna to be talking about COVID-19 coping with global chaos. And to tackle these topics, uh, or this topic, we have a stellar group of people. Uh, first, I would like to introduce to you uh, uh, Dr. Sandy Johnson, who is Director of Global Health Affairs at the University of Denver. Dr. Johnson, welcome. And would you uh, simply say hello to get us started? Um, yeah, Joyce, hello. Um, many thanks to you and many thanks to the World Affair Council for organizing this. Well, thank you, Doctor. We'll be right back to you. And we will now uh, introduce Susan Stigant, who's Director of Africa Programs for the United States Institute of Peace in Washington. 
Good evening, Joyce. Thanks for having me on tonight. Look forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. And we have Irina Lagunina, who's with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's Russian service, and with whom I worked for many, several years at any rate. We won't say too, too many, but several years. How are you, Irina? Great. Thank you, Joyce, and thank you for this discussion. Absolutely. And finally, an old friend we have here, Ziad Marisi, who's Director of Global Health Strategies. How are you tonight, Ziad? Ziad, are you there? Take your mute off. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Very right. nice to meet you all. I'm very excited to be here, and I look forward to a very productive conversation tonight. I knew you wouldn't run away too, too soon. It hadn't gotten tough yet. So. <laughs> all right, let's get started. What I think I, we want to do is let me let you start by introducing yourselves a little bit, saying a little bit about your background, your work and about the organizations that you're working with. If it's a university, you can tell us a little bit about the university too. But why don't we start with Dr. Johnson? Great. Um, well, I'm Sandy Johnson. I direct the Global Health Affairs Program at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. That's a mouthful. Um, just very briefly, I think the wonderful thing about the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies is it looks at global issues from an interdisciplinary perspective. And if we've learned nothing else from the time of kind of COVID-19, I'm hoping we're learning that it takes multiple disciplines to attack the problem and come up with solutions for this. Um, in terms of myself, I, I, I call myself a mutt because I have an interdisciplinary background, um, but I basically do infectious disease epidemiology and the intersection of that with international development. That sounds like a perfect set of expertise for tonight's discussion. Great. So uh, uh, Susan, what would you talk a little bit about one of my favorite organizations in the whole universe? I was a Peace Fellow there uh, a few years ago, but I still have fond memories. It's wonderful. We have such a, a tremendous network of, of Peace Fellows and former Jenning Randolph Fellows. Um, so USIP, um, US Institute of Peace, is a national nonpartisan independent institute. We were founded by the US Congress over 30 years ago. And we're dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible. It's practical and it's essential for US and global security. And so the Institute works around the world and we work with local partners to prevent, mitigate and resolve violent conflict. And we pursue our mission by linking research, policy, training and analysis and direct action to support those who are working to build a more peaceful and inclusive world. Uh, my background is uh, primarily on inclusive uh, peace processes and constitutional design. I had the pleasure to work in um, Sudan uh, during the time that South Sudan was born as a country and to witness its, its full transition. So happy to join today. Well, thank you again. Great expertise for our conversation today. Irina, tell us a little bit about that great organization you're with, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and your work. <laughs> Yeah, it's really a great organization. It's actually part of uh, the US International Broadcasting, and we are preparing to celebrate 70 years of uh, our operations. Uh, right now, it's 23 countries and 27 languages. Uh, it includes uh, the former Soviet Union, uh, some countries uh, in uh, the Central Europe and uh, Eastern Europe. Um, actually, we, uh, we were, 
we were always an organization that was working against ourselves. Once the country has become democracy, uh, we are not needed in those countries anymore. But uh, having said that, uh, for example, the Romanian service was closed, the Hungarian service was closed after the collapse of the Soviet uh, of the socialist regimes, but now they are reestablished again. Uh, so we are uh, we are still covering Eastern Europe, uh, former Soviet Union, uh, uh, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, everywhere where we need it. Uh, I worked for this organization for the last 25 years, and in fact, it's my 33 years in journalism this year, uh, so most of my life, and uh, I was covering mostly security issues uh, and humanitarian issues, humanitarian law. Uh, and right now, of course, uh, COVID uh, overshadowed everything. And uh, just to say that uh, uh, the Russian service, for example, now is going through a, a lawsuit uh, in Russia, one of our correspondents, uh, for, uh, for the fact that uh, she wrote uh, that there is no enough uh, uh, professional staff to operate the ventilators for those uh, who are uh, who are sick with with COVID. So I can talk about it a little bit later. That Thank you. Great. Yes, and you are based in Prague, right? You're still in yes. Prague. Okay, yes. I remember this yes. city well, a great place to stay. Yeah, it's your turn to tell us about you and about uh, global uh, strategy, global health strategy. So I'm a medical doctor originally from Tunisia, from North Africa, and uh, it's actually, I met Joyce in the context of the Arab Spring, but that's another story. <laughs> Yes. Uh, one other story I have is I met my wife through a workshop uh, of, uh, organized by USIP. So they not only uh, bring peace to the world, but they allow people to meet each other. Uh, so very grateful for that. Uh, but um, yeah, I work for Global Health Strategies. It's a global health consulting firm with seven offices across the world. Uh, we work mostly with WHO, the UN, and the big philanthropies. And um, we usually work on several health issues, uh, family planning, uh, TB, HIV, and others. But yeah, as you may imagine, in the last year, we've been focusing a lot on COVID. So really happy to share my experience here. Very good. And my apologies that you have all these ladies around you. Please forgive us. <laughs> but we'll get, we'll get started now. How about, um, let's talk a little bit, Dr. Johnson, about uh, really the U.S. response to this. Now, we heard in our keynote last night that it hasn't been all good, it, that there are some deficiencies and that, um, you know, unfortunately, it could have meant that some people died that perhaps didn't need to. So let's hear what your research is, has shown and uh, so that we'll be aware. Go ahead. Um, so I preface this with the fact that I'm going to talk about numbers and Patrick, I'm incredibly grateful for your opening and your moment of silence. I have yet to see us as a nation have a moment of silence for the lives that have been lost in this and I very much appreciate that. I also preface this with while I'm talking about numbers, I ask that we all keep in mind these numbers represent human lives that have been lost. Um, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, friends, lovers and children. The U.S. response at the national level has been an absolute failure. And I say this uh, when we look at the number of deaths that we've had in this country and when we look at the number of cases. In terms of deaths in the U.S., 
the U.S. deaths account for more than 20% of global deaths from COVID-19. And this comes from a country that is one of the top two economic forces in the world. It has one of the most well-developed healthcare systems. Um, and, and it's kind of shocking and appalling. Uh, when we look at, you now we're a large population, and I just want to share some, some numbers with you. If we think about the U.S. and the deaths that we've seen, so roughly 190,000, if we control for population, what we've seen in the U.S. is about 56 deaths per 100,000 population. Uh, the closest kind of comparison I could come up with in terms of population size is that of the EU. So the EU is, what, 27 nations. Um, and the EU death rate per 100,000 is 31. So it's almost half of what we experienced in the US. When we look at cases per 100,000, the US is about, uh, about 1,831. The EU is about 425. So we've done a terrible job controlling the spread of the disease and we've done a terrible job protecting our vulnerable populations and our less vulnerable populations from the morbidity and mortality that comes with this disease. Um, I think I have two, two good points. I, I start with these numbers um, as an example of the failure of the US response at the national level. Um, I'm sure in our conversation, we'll talk a little bit more about different aspects that came into play. Um, but I also put this out that it's not too lean, late to change the course of what we're doing but it's going to take a concerted effort across our country. I also want to point out that while at the national level we have done a terrible job managing this disease, there are states and communities that have actually shown we can be successful in managing this disease. Um, the other thing that I do want to point out is, um, forgive my dark sense of humor, we're not actually the worst case out there. Brazil is actually worse than we are. Um, I mentioned that we have 56 deaths per 100,000, Brazil has 58 per 100,000. Um, they have slightly more cases per 100,000 than we do. So we're the second worst in the world. We should have done better than that. I'll stop my comments there. Wow, that is, that's truly sobering. That's truly sobering. But the truth is we're living through this in the United States. So it all rings true what, what, what you're saying. But we will come back because I really do want to hear a little bit more about where, where, who's been doing it right, at least at the state level. So let's, let's come back to that. But meanwhile, look, we know that around the world, we heard a little bit about how this has impacted different countries and destabilized them in many ways. And that's why I think what, what uh, Susan Stegant at USIP has to offer is so important for us to hear. It's impacted stability, conflict, peace in places, especially in Africa. So would you share with us a little bit what your research has shown, Susan? Yeah, you know, when we when we think about peace and stability, we, we talk a lot about this concept of fragility on the one hand and resilience on the other hand. And this is all anchored um, in the idea, and I think the growing evidence, that when countries have a healthy state-society relationship, when people believe that their government will take care of them, will take care of their security, will provide health services, will provide education and clean water and roads, and that they will take care of all people, we know that countries are more resilient to shocks. And whether that's a shock of a public health crisis 
for a shock of um, an extremist organization, whether it's an internal shock or a natural disaster. We know that those countries that have those healthy state society relationships that are less fragile, that are more resilient, will do better. And I think what we've seen um, in Africa is that, you know, it's a huge continent, so I don't want to generalize at all. But I think there are some, there are some um, bright spots where we've where we've seen proof that having existing mechanisms and health structures, um, community tracing capacity um, that's been developed in response to tuberculosis or HIV/AIDS, and being able to activate that in the case of South Africa, for example, and some some cases in West Africa, actually helped to slow the curve. It didn't. It didn't prevent COVID-19 and their countries are facing massive challenges today, but it helped to slow and manage the curve. Um, we've also seen that countries that tend to be more um, strong armed with their use of security forces took a stronger reaction and tried to impose curfews or tried to lock people at home when across Africa the reality of how the economy works quite looks quite different um, and so in countries where there's been a greater trust in security you get more compliance right and I think that this is true anywhere. Um, maybe something we can talk about a bit later um, is also how this has really sparked, I think, a necessary conversation around debt relief and debt for Africa. Um, it has provoked and shown a truly multilateral response across Africa, because I think there's a sense that it won't work any other way, whether it's supply chains or getting health workers in the places that they need to be. Um, and I think that that's something that we can all look to as, as really an example of what we can be doing when the global order is working at its best. Mm -hmm. I, I want to come back to you and, and I'll just give you this tidbit because yesterday we heard from Lenore Moudou, who is with the um, Radio Free Africa. Uh, actually, Voice of America, I think they're Africa service, but she indicated that it, Rwanda and perhaps uh, one or two other countries had actually done pretty well in ha managing this, whereas Tanzania had not done so well. So it would be nice to get your thoughts also on where this might have worked to, and people dealt with it well to keep things stable and where it didn't. But I'll come back to you for that, just giving you a little heads up. Um, let's talk Irina about Russia. Russia blew the world away. It certainly blew Joyce away when, it, when they announced, we've got a vaccine, it's a Sputnik moment. And I sat up and took notice, as I'm sure others did. And yet you had people saying, ah, come on, you know that's not true. So let's hear from you. Is it true, is it not true? Uh, well, to some extent, uh, you know, uh, if, you, if you look at it from the point of view of Mr. Putin, then it's absolutely uh, true. If you look uh, at it from the point of view of Russians, then uh, most of them would say more than half, according to the polls, would say that it's absolutely uh, not true. But I think that Kremlin actually uh, almost got what uh, it wanted, because uh, to my mind, the race for Russian vaccine had initially three goals. The first and the most obvious goal, of course, is to save the country from COVID-19. Every government and every medical institution in the world, I think, has the same goal today. The economic and human burden in Russia is huge, and uh, the Russian economy is not exception from the world. Some analysts say that uh, from April to July, this year, Russia lost up to 18% of gross domestic product. Official figures are about up to 8% of GDP, 
but also the official figures show that population lost 17% uh, of uh, income. Uh, so the goal is obvious. The second goal differs Russia from many other countries in the world. It's a matter of pride to be the first country to produce uh, the vaccine. And Vladimir Putin says it absolutely publicly. He even said that one of uh, his daughters got a shot. Yeah. Uh, this admitting that he has daughters uh, for the first time in 20 years. So this is how uh, proud he was. And the third goal is geopolitical. Uh, we see already how Kremlin started to manipulate with uh, uh, who will get uh, the first Russian vaccine, who would be the first to get it. Belarus, of course, uh, a great gift to support the ally who is now facing the massive protests and uh, outrage because of the election results uh, uh, that thousands of uh, Belarusian CS uh, forged. Brazil on the second place, countries of BRICS, uh, the group that Russia sees as an alternative to uh, Western allies. So by announcing uh, the premature uh, vaccine that didn't get through the third stage yet, the trials began on the 25th of uh, August, uh, but it's just initial uh, stage of the third, uh, third stage of, uh, of trial of vaccine, by announcing uh, that Russia was the first uh, uh, Kremlin uh, got, his, uh, got its victory. <laughs> it got the publicity, right? <laughs> do you, uh, so do you really believe, first of all, we do believe he has daughters, right? But do you uh, We know now for sure, <laughs> which is absolutely fantastic. It took only 20 years to admit. And, and if he had daughters, do you really believe his daughters would get an unproven vaccine first? Uh, maybe, because, you know, it's now a matter of... Uh, after he announced that uh, uh, his daughter, one of his daughters, uh, got the vaccine, it's now a matter of uh, showing loyalty to Kremlin to, uh, to get this vaccine. So uh, a lot of ministers right now announced that uh, they also got the shot and they feel great. And <laughs> even one minister, the minister of um, industry and trade, uh, said that he got the vaccine and is still on his feet, unlike the first people uh, who got vaccine and ended up uh, in the hospital. Now, that's how we know that the first trial of vaccine was Wouldn't not it? really uh, very good. And uh, there was no information about somebody got sick and uh, somebody getting into the hospital after uh, the first trial. But now we know that it was the case, that uh, this is the cost that people paid for uh, premature vaccine uh, release. Wow, there you, there you go, Dr. Johnson. Maybe this will happen here, that we get that vaccine and the leaders will take it first and <laughs> maybe that will happen, right? We'll see, we'll see. We'll come back and talk to you about that. But yeah, Dr. Marisi, let's, let's tune into you. Listen, doctors all over the globe are in the trenches. You, you know about, especially in the developing world and in the Middle East and places like that. Talk to us a little bit about what they are going through and were they excited to hear that, uh, how much confidence do they have in all these early vaccines? That would be a good place for us to start. 
Well, I think that uh, it is always with hope that we look at vaccines and at immunizations because not only uh, vaccines are going to save us from COVID, but vaccines are currently saving us from polio, from measles, from all these diseases that uh, either um, lead to child mortality, but also the flu vaccine that sort of prevents a lot of death among our elderly. And I think it's important that we keep this message of hope around vaccination immunization ahead of uh, what I could see a very difficult year in terms of like vaccine hesitancy. Uh, we know that not all the vaccines are going to work, that some of them might work better than others. Uh, some of them might need various shots to different uh, multiple shots to, to work and, and, and might lead to a little disappointment. And, and we know that there is a, an anti-vaccine crowd that's out there looking for opportunities to kind of like um, yeah. Yeah. point fingers and point the blame and, and, and describe the one case that might lead to complications, which is uh, very possible with any new vaccine. So I feel like it's, it's a truly a moment um, of truth that we will face at some point with the first vaccines. Hopefully the first ones will work well. In the case, some of the first ones will not work as well as predicted. We need to be ready for that backlash, but keep our faith in vaccines and keep moving forward. But when you talk about the trenches, I think people think about uh, ICUs and they think about people uh, who sort of dealing with, with the complicated cases of COVID-19. And I think we talked a lot about flattening the curve and about equipping our hospitals with everything that is needed to absorb uh, the moments of pressure when they come. I'm glad to say that a lot of countries around the world didn't have to face the, what Italy has faced or what New York has faced. So I think in many ways, uh, certain countries being remote, certain countries being um, closed, closing early and applying all the public health measures, that allowed us to contain and flatten the curve and allow sort of like the health systems not to crash. Uh, because what we want to avoid is having a health system sort of uh, outperformed by the virus and having more people that they can uh, handle and then having also uh, little epidemics and outbreaks among healthcare workers, which we're trying to avoid. So I think ultimately the, the picture is, is quite positive when it comes to the way doctors in the trenches have been dealing with this. Obviously, there are a lot of uh, pressure points, New York, Italy, France, UK, uh, where we've seen a lot of dramatic images and a lot of, um, and obviously China from the very beginning, we've seen how much help. India, India is a, a, a you know. Yeah, healthcare workers yeah. are paid a big toll and even had a lot of nervous breakdowns and other um, yeah. the other issues that we were not able to deal with. But we're learning along the way and we're very helpful moving forward. Okay, now I hear what you're saying about, you know, keeping positive and about the vaccine, but I will tell you, and I'm going to come back to talk to you about this. Throughout the world, we have heard, including in our country, we have seen medicine and science now politicized. And when that happens, people like me even lose faith. I mean, we get scared <laughs> about, can I trust? Can I trust? So Dr. Johnson, I'm going to pull it back here to you. Listen, on one hand, uh, Dr. Emanuel was saying a lot of the blame has to rest at the top for the different messaging for not doing what should have been done at the beginning. 
But one of the things, and I'm going to ask Susan about this too, one of the things that we also have to take into consideration, our freedoms, <laughs> our attitude that we do what we want in this country, is that part of also what the problem has been in the U.S., that Americans just don't listen. They don't, they're not corralled as easily as people are in other countries. But I'll throw that to you for you to talk a little bit about the politics, the unique nature of Americans and whatever else you think of. <laughs> well, that's such an easy one, Joyce. Thank you. <laughs> I try to give you a break here. <laughs> so, so I will preface this by saying I suspect my, my co-panelists are going to have different perspectives on this. Um, when we look at some of the problems that we've seen with communication in the US, um, absolutely, there's been a problem at the national level with basically fiction. Um, fiction that's, placed, that's been placed out there. We've seen mixed messages coming from different members of the National COVID Task Force uh, with those that are scientifically based, making statements, uh, those that are uh, more political, those from the White House, ignoring those statements or creating some fantasy construction. Um, and unfortunately, what we've seen at the national level is agencies that have been in many ways trustworthy, that have many people working to provide good data, good science, agencies like the CDC, they report directly to the White House. And this is where the politicization has come in. Um, when I look at some of the, I'm very critical of what's happened at the national level, um, we've had statements made that are against science. We've had documents from the CDC that were providing evidence-based recommendations sent back and told to revise them because they're just not feasible, AKA they're not good politically. Um, and I can, I'll come back to that if I remember to. Um, I'll bring you back to that because that's important. <laughs> um, and, and you know, the problem is we are then left with this, this question, whom do we actually believe? When we have agencies that are science-based that are, because of the, the reporting structures, are basically put in a position to release, we'll call it bad information. Um, it becomes really challenging. And I say that knowing that there are many people, um, and again, I'll use the CDC as an example, that are working very, very hard to get accurate information out there. Um, I mentioned that we've seen a couple of, of problems with documents come from the CDC. I'll go back to late April when our country, quote unquote, started to reopen. That's when we have a message coming from the White House that we are open for business. This was at a time when the CDC put forward a document saying we have three criteria that we would like communities, be they states or be they cities, to consider before we start to reopen. And these are criteria to try to help us squish down the disease. We took such dramatic and important action in March and April. And Ziad, thank you for reminding us that we actually did flatten the curve. We did save many of our hospitals um, from, from collapse because of kind of this collective action. So the CDC puts out a document, three criteria. The first group of states that we saw open, none of them met that criteria. So we weren't able to bring transmission levels down to a point where we could actually use testing. We could use contact tracing, assuming we had a public health force. And Susan, I have to bow my head to you um, because I think you bring up an important point. There are a number of African nations that actually had a more developed public health force. Um, we didn't do that. We had more recently, and I think this is one that really touches a lot of people, this argument about what happens with reopening schools K to 12. 
we had the CDC issue a document that had guidelines for a safer reopening. There's not 100% safety out there, but a safer reopening. The White House looked at that document and said, these are too expensive and they're logistically impossible, so go and rewrite the document. How is that protecting the health and safety? It's providing information. It's not saying you have to do this, it's providing information. And so when we see a document that's providing guidelines for schools get revised and essentially dumbed down, we do have this kind of very serious question of, of trust. Whom do we trust? How do we trust? I talked a lot, you also asked kind of this question about individualism. Um, and I think that sometimes we see that being used as an excuse for bad behavior. Um, and the U.S. isn't alone. We've seen protests in Spain. We've seen, we saw a huge demonstration in Germany over the weekend, kind of this anti-mask protest. But we also see a lot of people that are more silent, if you will, not just complying, but setting good role models. And if you think about this question of liberty, you know, in this country, we have this big issue with masks. Um, okay, put a piece of cloth over your face. That's a minor imposition, one could say, on, civil liberty, on, on your liberty. But isn't it a far greater insult to one's liberty to make someone sick and potentially kill them? Isn't that taking somebody's life a much greater imposition on one's liberty? And I think that we do see a lot of people who understand that. Um, and they understand that despite very mixed messaging at the national level. Well, that's what I'd say. More people would understand it and would try, if the messaging were uniform, if everyone was saying this was the right thing to do, or at least everyone in leadership positions. But let's turn to Susan and to Irina there, because I'd like to find from you, have other countries in Africa, in, in Russia, have they had this issue, this problem of mixed messages from the, what governments, for example, in Africa gave it right, and what were these mixed messages. And in these countries, like Russia, is it easier to contain this when you're authoritarian? This is what you do and you don't do anything else but. So let's start with Susan and then Irina, I'll see if that worked in Russia. I mean, I guess I should stay, uh, start by saying that we, we, we need to approach this with a degree of humility, right? That leading through something that's entirely unprecedented um, is, it's hard. Uh, it's possible. We've seen in, in some countries that it is possible to lead um, effectively, but it's, it's difficult. And, and everything that I say here isn't to minimize the dilemmas that leaders face in trying to calibrate the health um, and the public health imperatives with what I talk about as the health of accountable governance in the country that for me, that is the fundamental determinant of, of how things will look going forward in response to COVID or any other threat that happens to, to cross a border at, at a particular moment. I mean, uh, Joyce, you talked earlier about Tanzania um, as an example that did really badly. And I think there are certainly countries on the continent, Tanzania, Burundi, where leaders have completely denied that COVID-19 exists. And so therefore having um, the, the response that's developed from that anchors entirely in communities. But what, what I think is really interesting is that in countries where people don't trust their governments in the first place, they look to community leaders as that source of authority. Um, and we know from research done by public health organizations, global public health organizations, that in past outbreaks of, of other diseases and viruses um, in the midst of civil wars, 
people have adopted the practice of shielding, right? They, they take vulnerable populations and they isolate them um, and they put them in a, in a place, whether it's an entire community that does it or within a household and people have done this and it's, it's worked. And whether that's because of polio or measles or other things that we enjoy um, having effective immunization for. Um, so authoritarianism is good in some cases, <laughs> in public health cases. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it really, I don't think it is really at the end of the day. I mean, if people don't, if, if it drives people to look to their local authorities and those local authorities are, are effective, then, then perhaps that's true. Um, but I don't think that that's, you can, you can gain trust in local authorities without authoritarianism at the top, I think. Um, and I think that's what we should all be looking towards is how do, how do we foster this trust so that, that people will believe that they're getting the information that they, they need to get. Um, I mean, this, this calibration between the public health imperatives and accountable governance, I, I look at this as one of the biggest challenges um, on the continent. And there, there were um, nearly 30 elections that were supposed to take place this year across Africa. Um, and as we start to see how decisions are made about whether to have those elections or not, how long they will be postponed, whether there is a state of emergency put in place, whether political opposition um, is repressed because of the virus. So in Zimbabwe, we've seen that, that there's been a crackdown on journalists and civil society in the name of COVID-19. Yeah. And so I think those are other indicators that we have to be very careful um, and look towards. And, and those, are, those are globally applicable. Got it, got it. But I, I, and Erin, now clearly the government in Russia has the ability to tell people what to do and they do it, right? Um, no? Tell us, what, what, what's the situation there? Because we consider it authoritarianism, right? Uh, well, it is authoritarianism, but uh, people would not necessarily do what the government is saying to do. Uh, but I want to return to Sandy's uh, question, I, whom do we trust? Yes. And I think that actually Russians had absolutely the same uh, problem, whom do we trust and how, and in, under what circumstances? And uh, I already mentioned that uh, majority of people are happy that, uh, and proud that there is a vaccine first in the world, uh, but also majority would not want to uh, uh, make this uh, shot, uh, to use this vaccine at the moment. And yet, no, it's not uh, because they are anti-vaccine. Actually, in this poll that I'm referring to, only 2% were anti-vaccine, which is uh, very, very low. Uh, but uh, whom do we trust? Uh, you know, because uh, uh, people understand that from the very beginning, um, uh, Kremlin wanted to make a projection of being in control of even the virus uh, and also show Russians that nothing like this chaos that happened in Italy, for example, uh, will not be in Russia because, uh, uh, you know, Kremlin controls everything we are in control, we will make you happy. This is an absolutely totalitarian message. You know, the state will give you everything, don't worry. So as a result, uh, the, uh, the, in Moscow, uh, for example, the quarantine measures were established in a harsh way. Mm. Uh, and uh, it really made people very angry uh, because it was a police operation, practically. Uh, you know, with fines, with uh, 
control of mobile movement, uh, GPS systems, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So people were just really angry. And then in one day, uh, when Putin wanted to make a referendum on the constitutional amendments, all these measures were lifted. So it was the same mixed message as uh, whom people should believe. Uh, why did we have these quarantine measures in first place if for political reasons you can lift them in a one day and say that everything is safe and uh, sound right now? Uh, Irina, did those methods work to flatten the curve? Uh, I think, well, frankly, I don't know why exactly, and I don't think that experts know, uh, but Russia uh, got through the peak of the uh, epidemic rather smoothly, even though the official statistics was not, uh, uh, was based on uh, different parameters compared to Italy, for example. Uh, still, we don't look at the number of uh, official deaths from COVID that the Russian government is giving. We are looking at the mortality rate in this particular period and compare it to last year, uh, for example. And still it's like, 30% over uh, what was last year. So it's not that drastic situation as, uh, as it was in Italy, for example. But I also can compare, or in the US, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, what I also want, uh, can compare to another free loving country, which I'm living right now in is Czech Republic, uh, which also, I mean, if, if you look at the uh, Eastern Europe, Czech, Czech Republic is the most stable example of development of democratic values and freedoms and uh, uh, free markets and uh, healthy uh, post-socialist society. The Czechs were fantastic. Czechs led Europe uh, oh. in terms of uh, the measures. Czechs were actually uh, among three countries who uh, imposed quarantine measures on a very early stage is Greece, uh, Slovakia, and Czech Republic. Uh, so whom did they trust? Mm. Czechs trusted their families. Ah. And uh, this is uh, very similar to what Susan was saying. It's not a community leader, it's not a government. Uh, even though there was a bipartisan agreement on what Czech Republic should do but it's families. Czech society is very family oriented. And when they saw what's going on with the elderly population in Italy, they immediately united uh, within the families and made everything possible in order to uh, you know, contain uh, the, 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 the worst case scenario. Wow, that, that's, that's a good, good thing. Now Ziad, we have a question. I'm gonna let you guys answer some of these questions that have come in. They wanna hear from your perspective. Well, first of all, in your research, did you find people who simply are willfully ignorant? They simply don't believe there's a virus because we have that in the US. There is no virus. In fact, when I do my Facebook lives, I get people to write in sometimes, stop fooling people. There is no virus. Ziad, are you seeing this around the, in, in the areas you're working with around the world? Yeah, I think in a different way, but the message would be the same. I think a lot of people were worried that we'll get hungry. So that's why they would not sort of like stop moving. They would still go to um, do their chores because they need to earn a living to feed mm -hmm. their families. So for them, there is no virus. Um, whether they, it actually is or not, it's not the issue. I think the issue is uh, the ability of government to provide 
everything that everyone needs to kind of be able to apply the health measures that are new to the population. And the poorer the countries, the more difficult this whole thing becomes. So I feel it, in many ways, it's hard to do lockdowns when there is no uh, space uh, for people to, to, even the homes, they don't have enough space to have everyone who's supposed to be there. And putting everyone there for a long period of time is definitely not possible. I mean, think about slums, thinks about other areas. So we needed to be sort of creative and sort of like the way we approach things. And that leads definitely to um, mixed messages. I mean, remember in the beginning, uh, and I'm happy, Irina, she was speaking about the Czech Republic. Czech Republic was one of the few countries that started doing masks at home and inviting everyone to put a mask. France at that time was saying, oh, I mean, masks, they're not really reliable. And others in Europe were doing the same. And and I think I think there are mixed messages. When it came to kind of like, when the economy came to on the brink of collapse, then all of a sudden, like tourism was welcome and people were like, uh, welcome to go to the beach, while two months later, like going to the grocery store was very risky. So I feel like uh, it's important to emphasize that mixed messages are part of the response, that we're learning every day about this virus, that data is sinking every day and there are publications every day. But I think what worries me the most is the disruption that this had on the overall health systems. When we look around the world, 90% of the countries have reported that health systems were disrupted one way or the other. And we're talking about immunization, we're talking about family planning, we're talking about cancer screening, we're talking about a lot of issues that might lead to higher mortality than, uh, than the virus itself. So it's important to uh, also look at the big picture and not also get lost in, in what the response to the virus needs. We need a health system that's fully functioning and healthy population on all fronts. Yeah, you brought it. That's a very good point. And Sandy, I'm sure that's an issue. That's an issue here in the United States as well. Uh, you know, people are not going to the doctor. They're afraid to go to the doctor. Um, they're afraid to go to the dentist. So, so, so all of this is being put off. Um, but, but I want to ask you, is there, Sandy, is there a place in the, you said there were some states that did it right and others that didn't. Can you talk a little bit about who did it right when you look at the state level in the U.S.? So again, I will preface this with some people are going to disagree with me. Um, but I think that if we look at Washington, I think that if we look at New York, um, I think that these were two states that were hit early. Um, they were hit hard. And at the state level, the governors took early action. Um, New York kind of had this double experience because you had the state and then you had uh, New York City. And, you know, if we, if we just look at kind of the, the data, New York has highest case level, highest death rate um, out of the US, but that came from these early days. And when we actually look at the, again, there were missteps and, and Susan, I have to thank you for reminding us all that leadership in this time is difficult, um, but some people do a better job. <laughs> some people try, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, well, you know, and I think that, that if we look at New York State and New York City, some could argue that there were some missteps early on, that there should have been uh, basically a lockdown earlier, that there should have been more protections put in place around some of the, the uh, senior living communities, that it should have been done earlier. We should have 
learned like the Czech Republic did based on what we saw in Italy. Um, but we did see kind of very early measures for, for lockdown. We, and I think one of, one of the things that was important with both of those states is they didn't open up early. Mm. And, you know, I don't know if, if you've had friends in New York um, or friends in New York City, but Colorado opened last week of April. And it was very, it was surreal talking to friends in New York that were still basically in a lockdown mode for an additional six weeks. But what we saw from New York was the level of disease was suppressed very, very heavily to a point where it it's possible to start to manage the new cases as, as outbreaks. Um, and I think that we saw something, something similar in Washington. I'm, a, I'm in Colorado. Colorado has a much smaller population. Um, and I will say that I think in Colorado, we did a relatively good job. Um, the, the state mandate to open at the end of uh, April, we didn't quite hit the numbers that the CDC had asked for, but there was a coordination of city governance along the front range, which had the much higher population density to kind of keep more restrictions in place for a longer period of time until we had that 14 day downward trend. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think actually our state, Pennsylvania, although again, it was politicized, um, we had a lot of people opposing the shutdown at all, because just as, as Ziad was saying, people also were worried about whether they would survive, have enough food on the table when the shutdown you know, came. But I, let, let me take, we're, we're coming to the end, believe it or not, of this fascinating conversation. But one of the questions that's asked here, uh, Susan, would you take this one? She says, what do you see as the biggest opportunities for NGOs? and the private sector to contribute to recovery efforts that might be missing from government responses? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, um, we've talked a lot about the public health impacts and the peace and security impacts. We haven't talked quite as much about the economic impacts. Um, in a lot of places, we talk about sort of second and third order effects. I think across Africa, these are the first and second order effects, right? Like the, the economies are constraining. You have negative growth for the first time in almost a decade. Um, the head of the World Food Program has, has warned of the risk of humanitarian crisis and famine of biblical proportions. And so I think, you know, there's, there's a tremendous, the needs that existed before continue to exist and have been exacerbated and I think amplified by, by this public health crisis. Um, people have already mentioned that, you know, that the day-to-day -day medical support that people get um, is not necessarily happening. That's, that's true across Africa too. We've seen concerns that immunization campaigns aren't going forward. And then what will be the knock-on effects um, of that? Um, education. I know that, you know, many of us who have children are wading into online education, which is complicated. And in a lot of countries, that's simply not an option. Um, so all of these basic services, um, in addition to the tensions that will start to, to be created between communities that feel like they have benefited or not benefited from the response, the public health response and all of the other support that's, that's very much needed. And so I think there's, there's going to be really increased space for that. And 
as you said at the beginning, Joyce, there's this, this complex set of, of challenges that are being faced in the United States, but across the world. Um, and in many ways, we're all in this, this same sort of boat. And so how, how we get out of it, I think, is it's a tremendous opportunity, but that takes real leadership. And it takes leadership from the top down and the bottom up and inside out and outside in. And I think that's where NGOs and civil society have a really important role to play. It's, it's just so bad. We, uh, you know, I could talk to you guys for another hour, but we, we are at the end. I'm going to throw one final question out at everyone so, so that we can wrap this up, because I think it is one people are wondering about. When should the world expect? Okay, put your crystal balls out, take them out. When should the world expect to get back to the semblance of normal? In, a, in, in the continent of Africa, will we ever get back to the semblance of normal, right? So, I guess, where do we start? Um, let's start with Dr. Johnson. When, and then we'll, we'll just go down line. Dr. Johnson, when do you, as you look out, can we expect to get back to normal in the US? I think we're going to learn that there's going to be a new normal. Um, I think that we have a lot of our hopes for returning to the past, and that might not be the way forward. Um, and, I, you know, I encourage you to talk to your grandmother, your grandfather, about what it was like before we had a polio vaccine. Mm. We found ways of managing an infectious disease without pinning all of our hopes on, on a vaccine. I'm optimistic that at some point in the future there will be a vaccine. But if we're kind of longing for this past, and that's how we want to operate, I don't think we're actually going to get there. I think we have to find a new way of operating. Okay, Irina, when will we get back to normal? In Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, Russia already pretends that it lives in a normal society. So <laughs> that's not the case anymore. Uh, and uh, the curve there is really going down and uh, there are less and less people uh, infected officially, or maybe there are less and less tests made. Uh, we don't know. In Czech Republic, we thought that we were already uh, were in normality uh, a month ago, uh, but uh, recently there is a huge uh, growth of new cases. Uh, they are different from what uh, there was before because uh, uh, if before uh, the uh, population of, uh, let's say, 25, uh, 35, uh, rarely got the virus or were asymptomatic uh, most, mostly. Right now, it's not the case anymore. Uh, the uh, symptoms are mild. It's like two days fever. Uh, most of them a little bit of sneezing, uh, a little bit of body pain, and then it goes away. But uh, the, this active population, active age, uh, and economically active age uh, is right now suffering from uh, COVID uh, symptoms. Uh, so it's, it's slightly different virus from what it was in spring, uh, but it's growing. And uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't cause that much concern. Okay. Uh, on the level of population. The habits are the same. Uh, you know, uh, okay, since tomorrow we will have to wear masks again in the shops and in transport, not on the streets, uh, but uh, in public places. Uh, but everybody kind of accepts coping. it. They're coping. Yeah. 
Interesting. All right, Susan, what about Africa? When will it get back to normal? And then Ziad will take us out. <laughs> um, so I'm going to agree with Sandy a little bit here. I think that the greatest risk is that we go back to normal. Um, and that if we miss this opportunity, uh, you know, people have talked about this as a similar opportunity to 75 years ago when we redefined the current global order. If we miss this opportunity to redefine some critical relationships between communities, between communities and their governments, among governments, between African countries and the rest of the global space, um, I, I think that will be a tremendous lost moment. Uh, and so my, my greatest hope is that amidst the, the urgency of the response to the health crisis, the urgency of the response to the humanitarian crisis, the risks of continued bad decision-making, that something emerges out of that, that that starts to tilt the balance again. And there's, there are fundamental structural issues in the global order that, that need to be addressed so that we don't end up in these consistent cycles of violence, of health crises, and, and we end up exactly where we are again today. Well, thank you. And, and Ziad, you know, we didn't even touch on whether the, uh, if there is a vaccine, well, it, whether it will be equally distributed around the world. But why don't you leave us with what you think the new normal will be around the globe? Well, we, we always talk about a vaccine, but actually there are 29 vaccines that currently undergoing clinical trials. So everyone is gonna have a different vaccine around the globe and we will see different results. So I think it's gonna, take a while till we get to sort of like the vaccine. But in the meantime, we are going to, to, to see a new normal. And I think uh, for us, we are very hopeful to see two years from now, uh, if, if normal is taking a plane, if normal is going to a conference, I think we'll be able to see that some of that in, in a different way, of course, but I think it will come back. But ultimately we're 7 billion people on this globe. We never have managed to vaccine to to get a vaccine to to all the population of the globe. Even if the vaccine has has been discovered for uh, for fifty or forty years, so so I think we will reach uh, a certain equilibrium, and that will be called the new normal. And I agree with Professor Johnson on that one. Well, you guys have been in thoroughly enlightening and wise. I think we have a, a, a panel here that has shared a lot of wisdom, uh, even though it is necessarily all um, pie in the sky. It's, it's reality. But I want to thank you on behalf of all of our World Affairs Council, Sandy, Irina, Ziad, Susan, you've been fantastic. And with this, I'm going to turn it over to John Krieger and who's going to give our final words. Well, thank you, Joyce, and thank you also to all of our panelists. Thank you to everyone who's joined us tonight and last night. Thank you to our sponsors at Harrisburg University and the KU Medical Center. Um, one of the things that I think the last two nights has reminded us very clearly is that this is a big, broad, devastating challenge for the globe, but it's also reminded us that we have some of our very best minds working on it. And we've seen that. Uh, throughout. And so while we started with a moment of silence for those who have been lost, I, I think we should end with a moment of appreciation for all of those who are working, the doctors, the nurses, the development officers, everyone all across the globe risking their lives to keep people safe, to manage through this crisis, and to get us to whatever that new normal is. So thank you to all of you out there. We appreciate you. 
and we are, are, are pulling for you. So thank you all very much. Everybody stay healthy, stay safe, and please support your local World Affairs Council.